Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. When it comes to the collapse of Champlain Tower South, I think that we know a lot about the how and, and not so much about the why. Why it happened is still a mystery. I think you have to go to the original conception and design of this building as the first piece of the puzzle. What is this L-shaped design, L-shaped tower, and what kind of effect does that have? Who are the people that were chosen to ensure that this odd design um, stands up over time? Ben Conark is an investigative reporter, and he's covered this story for the Miami Herald from multiple angles, including the angle, the shape, of the building itself. The layout was unusual, but the idea makes sense. It was to maximize the number of units with ocean views and therefore maximize the prices and value of the building. The architect behind this unorthodox L design was relatively unknown, though, and untested. And as we're about to hear, it turns out that practically all of the developers, designers, and engineers behind Champlain Tower South, well, each of them had some issues of their own. From the beginning of the project back in the late 1970s, there were questions about their competence, their tactics, and their track records. And there were questions about Surfside, whether it could handle what was then by far the biggest construction project that this little town by the sea had ever seen. What these developers did was they, they set their sights on this town and they figured out how to maximize the profit they could get off of the hand they were dealt. There was a lot of open space there, a lot of room to play, a lot of places to build. They were taking advantage of that. So I think it raises a lot of questions about, you know, is the bang for the buck of designing a building this way worth it? Uh, yeah, you're getting more ocean views, um, but the people that you're getting to buy these ocean views are they going to be stuck with a failing building 20, 30, 40 years down the line? Hindsight is, of course, 2020, but that is exactly what happened. And as Ben Conark said just a moment ago, the question is why? I'm Paul Bieben, and in this episode of Collapse, Disaster, and Surfside, we're going all the way back to the beginning, when the tallest building in town was just a few stories high, but a group of developers from out of town was thinking much bigger. As we've learned in previous episodes, everyone connected to the original plans and construction of Champlain Tower South is dead. They can't defend their designs, nor can they be held accountable for their eventual failure. But one thing Ben Conark says has emerged is that they probably weren't held accountable 40 years ago either. I asked him about the relationship between the town and the developers. The question is, is, does all of this tip over into outright negligence? Is it because corners were cut time after time after time and enough corners led to this deadly outcome? What are we really getting at here? 
I think it's fair to say that the, that it, this was not a well-oiled machine in the town of Surfside. So I think the way to contextualize government dysfunction in this story is to think about, you know, what was the atmosphere like? What was the environment like in late 70s, early 80s Surfside? Could an oversight big enough to bring down a building have happened in this environment? And I think when you do the research, the answer is a resounding yes. There was not enough oversight over what was happening at these construction sites. There was not enough leverage that the town government had over these developers to a degree that would make me or, or I think anyone feel comfortable that, oh no, I'm, I'm sure this building was, was designed and built properly. Um, it's not to say it wasn't, or it's not to say that the building collapsed because the town of Surside was dysfunctional. It's simply to say that, you know, a system of checks and balances that would bring someone comfort, um, I don't think existed back then. Surfside in the late 1970s was a relatively humble little patch of South Florida coast, just north of the much more developed city of Miami Beach. And in those years, Surfside became very popular with Canadian snowbirds, looking for a break from the cold up north and from the higher taxes at home. The big deal then was they had a lot of Canadian tourists who had been coming to Surfside for a long time. It was a kind of lower scale, more affordable alternative to Miami Beach, which was big hotels and a lot of razzle-dazzle. We first heard from veteran reporter Andres Viglucci in our last episode. He writes about urban affairs for the Herald and started covering Surfside back in 1983, just a couple years after Champlain Tower South was built. He recalls the low-key vibe of early 80s Surfside, just one square mile, Lots of low-rise buildings and eight blocks of beautiful beachfront. Surfside actually started out quite differently back in the 1920s and 30s, thanks to a few big spenders from Miami Beach. It grew out of a group of Miami Beach residents who wanted their own private beach, their own private club. So they built the Surf Club. It's a famous private club. A lot of these kind of robber barons, very wealthy people were among the founders. And that led then to the incorporation of the town of Surfside because they also wanted their own town. Over time, though, Viglucci says the complexion of the place shifted. Some of the original surf club is still there. It's actually part of a fancy Four Seasons now. But by the 1970s, the town that had grown up around the glamorous old club where everyone from Winston Churchill to Elizabeth Taylor and Frank Sinatra used to hang out. The town had taken on a much more middle-class character. Surfside was more kind of a family place where you'd come and stay in, the, in a small motel right on the beach. It wasn't expensive and it was quiet. So it was more kind of a family-type vacation spot. It was also a small residential section over towards the bay. So again, this whole idea begins where you could live here year-round. And the town had become so popular with Canadians in the 70s, it had actually become known as Quebec in the Tropics. A headline from the now-defunct Miami News from April 7, 1979, reads, Surfside's Love Affair with Canadians. And it says there were about a quarter million Canadians who visited South Florida every winter. One of them said, this is the place. This is the place for Canadians to come. When we hear somebody speaking French, we always stop and ask them where they're from. I won't go any place besides Surfside. 
Deirdre Funchen is a freelance investigative journalist. She's based in Florida and she covers commercial real estate. And for the Herald, she looked back at the men who developed Champlain Towers South and how the town felt about them and their big plans. Surfside at the time had a lot of single-family homes. Condos were a relatively new concept that had been pioneered in the 1960s. In the 70s, a lot of Canadian developers came down to build condos. Condos were great for towns that wanted to have a lot of property tax revenue for a single plot of land, so it was welcomed. Before the condo era, South Florida had a long history of real estate booms and busts going all the way back to the early 20th century. By the 1970s, the state's population was surging from just under 5 million to almost 10 million, and construction was roaring right along with it. By all accounts, it was a wild ride for Florida real estate. And until then, Surfside had held on to its small town feel. There were no high rises along Collins Avenue, the main drag in Surfside. It was mostly mom and pop hotels and motels, the kinds of places millions of Americans have stayed on vacation. And it was patrolled by a tiny police force with not a lot to do. Andres Viglucci. So it was sort of a sleepy little town, and the debates at the city council were about, you know, were the parking meters working, and were they collecting enough revenue from parking? I mean, it was really small-town stuff. There was a professional city manager when I arrived in 1983 who was actually very good. Before this fellow took the job, there had been a string of city managers. So my impression is the place had been run in a rather slapdash manner. In fact, before Viglucci arrived, eight city managers had cycled through Surfside during the period Champlain Tower South was built. And while it might have been sleepy on the outside, Deirdre Funchen says the town's inner workings, they were anything but a snooze. The town had some pretty rowdy politics. The town council meetings were described as being like a circus. I found an article from 1980 saying that There were 50 people there, mostly little old ladies in white shoes, um, that people would constantly yell at each other. Ben Conark says the shouty little old ladies were a sideshow, though, to some really serious problems. Surfside had become uniquely dysfunctional in the 1970s. You had headlines stemming from town government, including huge bribes um, from the vice mayor at the time. You had issues with just about every piece of infrastructure in the town. Um, You know, the firefighting systems weren't up to par. The water systems needed work. And the sewer systems were in such disarray that the guys in public works would pump sewage, human sewage, into the uh, intercoastal waterway. It was not a functioning town, either physically in its infrastructure or through its government. The way Surfside worked was there were a lot of quarrels and kind of infighting. The former town manager described people throwing their glasses of water at each other. I mean, this is like a telenovela. This is a lot of drama for a small town in South Florida. Surfside has long been run by a town commission, much like many other towns around the country. And being on the commission was a part-time job. It's often for retirees or other people with time on their hands. They were volunteers doing work that they didn't necessarily have any qualifications for, and the town didn't have the money to hire professional help. 
So the picture that starts coming together of Surfside in the late 1970s is a place that's somewhat chaotic politically and has some major infrastructure problems. The town needed money. And thanks to state law at the time, it couldn't raise property taxes very much. Enter Nathan Ryber, a brash Canadian who would later move to Florida permanently. He saw opportunity and he came up with a plan for a grand group of high-rise condos along the beach in Surfside. Ben Connark says the folks in charge in Surfside probably didn't know much about Ryber's career back in Canada, where he would be accused of absconding to Miami after some trouble with his taxes. Nathan Ryber was a, a lawyer from Toronto who moved to South Florida after he had been charged with tax evasion in Canada. So, you know, he has his, his group of Canadian buddies and they're down here in Surfside and they're looking around and they start to see potential in this little kind of glittering coastline just north of Miami. They were risk takers. They had vacation down here and they came up with the idea of creating some business ventures and creating a place for Canadians like them to really, uh, you know, instead of staying at these rinky-dink hotels, why not start building condos? I mean, that was kind of where things were headed in South Florida at the time. Reporter Deirdre Funchen also dug deep into Ryber's past. Nathan Ryber came to Canada from Poland when he was a child during the Great Depression. He became a lawyer. He dabbled in real estate development in the Toronto area. He faced a few lawsuits. He and some partners were accused of skimming money from laundry machines. There were some other allegations of fraud. The Canadian government charged him with tax evasion. So he gave up his law license to avoid being disbarred and came to South Florida at the same time that many Canadians did. Ryber gathered a group of investors to buy land along Collins Avenue and develop Champlain Towers North and South as a pair. The two lots in between, which eventually became Champlain Towers East and another unrelated building, would be developed later. The group named their buildings after the founder of Quebec, Samuel de Champlain. He's also the guy the lake that straddles the U.S.-Canada border is named after. All the Champlain buildings would be right on the beach. At the time, this was an unprecedented project for this small community. When Ryber and his team applied for their permits in 1979, the town was excited about it. Deirdre Funchen. There was eagerness to welcome this project to Surfside. It was going to be a nice luxury project that was going to bring in revenue for the town. Around the time that Champlain Towers was built, there were some limits that the state had put on how much you could raise property taxes, and Surfside was looking for more property taxes. If there's a condo on a site, and it's a tall condo with two or 300 units, they can get a lot of more property taxes out of that building than if there's a single-family house on it or if there's a low-lying hotel on it. Mitch Kinzer was the young mayor of Surfside at the time. He told the Herald recently that these guys, the Canadians, really took over our town. Ben Connark interviewed Kinzer about what he remembered from 40 years ago. We were approached by the uh, Champlain people, the town, and they wanted to build a... Uh, large condominium. We only had like three and four story buildings were the highest buildings we had. Basically, we were very thrilled that developers wanted to come in and put up buildings and increase our tax base, and which would have been something that most of the residents felt very good about. 
Andres Figlucci says the deal was a real turning point for Surfside. So these go-go developers from Canada really changed the course of the town by building Champlain Towers. You could argue that Champlain Towers really set the little town of Surfside on, on this new course. Even though the town had been founded as an exclusive sort of place because of the surf club creation, it had really become, again, a modest place for families to vacation, you know, good solid place to raise a family if you wanted to. The building was advertised as a luxury development at the time. And it really was, for its time, a, a nice building. Nice units. The location was great. It's a beautiful beach. And it was really a step up for this little town of Surfside. The question is, were they up to the job of supervising this? After the disaster, Ben Conark dug back into the Herald's own archives to see how it had covered the project and the people involved over the decades. When we first find out that the building was constructed in, in 1980, 1981, um, you know, the, the idea of going back in time 40 years it seems like how, you know, how can we possibly do this? But the more you, more time you spend kind of digging into the archives, um, it's actually kind of amazing how many clues you can amass by just backgrounding the people, um, backgrounding the towns, the, you know, the other work they did. And there are reasons based on the people who were in charge of these things to suspect that maybe there wasn't the best oversight at Champlain South. One of the key players was Sergio Breiterman. He's the man Ryber picked to be his structural engineer. So Sergio Breiterman was um, you know, born in Cuba. He was a Jewish immigrant to Miami in the late 60s um, and kind of an upstart engineer. We followed everything we could find about him in, in clippings and his you know, he, he went from designing kind of small residential structures to medical office buildings. In 1974, Breiterman won the contract for the public safety building in Coral Gables, about 40 minutes south of Surfside. In 2014, when the building was inspected, serious problems were found. There were cracks in the basement floor, there was corrosion in the reinforcement, and there were major issues in the parking garage. In fact, the garage was so bad that the city had been parking its fire trucks outside, worried that the structure might collapse. This project actually ended up being like a pretty key part of unwinding the history of, of Champlain South. There are a lot of issues with it pretty much from the start. You know, it smells like a wet dog. There's hairline cracks in the concrete slabs. And when they start trying to figure out what went wrong, they discover that it's lacking concrete reinforcement on some of the walls, which is a big deal because let's say you're returning from a trip or whatever and you, um, you know, accidentally take the car out of park and lunge forward and you hit this concrete wall in a parking garage. Well, the reinforcement's there to make sure your car doesn't plummet over the edge of the building onto the street below. But Sergio Breiterman basically shrugged that off. So this, this turns into a pretty serious controversy in, the, in about 1976. Sergio Breiterman was interviewed by the Herald at the time, and he said he couldn't remember if he had inspected that part of the construction work. And he basically said that it wasn't part of the structural component of the parking garage. Conark ran that by some structural engineers, and they strongly disagreed. 
two people use a word I'm not sure I'm allowed to say on the podcast. <laughs> they describe it as BS. That for Breiderman to kind of shrug off his responsibility, you know, while he might not have been the person responsible for placing all the the concrete reinforcement, that would be the uh, the contractor. But as the engineer over this building, it absolutely was his responsibility to make sure that that reinforcement was placed properly. Um, and that didn't seem to be something that he took seriously. You know, it's a concerning revelation when you find out that the engineer didn't have that sense of ownership or that sense of urgency about knowing exactly where and how this parking garage, which later would have major issues um, and need to be torn down. He didn't really take ownership over knowing where all the reinforcement in that building was. It's, it's a window into the mind of the people who were in charge of making sure this building was properly constructed. Six years later, Breiderman was an important member of Ryber's team. And then there's the architect Ryber tapped. He didn't exactly have a spotless resume either. The architect on Champlain South was a guy by the name of William Friedman, um, you know, relatively little known from Miami, um, had been doing business since the 60s. We discovered pretty early on that he had a bit of a checkered past. In 1965, Florida's Board of Architects slapped Friedman with a six-month suspension. That was after a side structure he designed blew off a building during Hurricane Betsy. The report cited gross incompetence, negligence, and carelessness. In the 1970s, he was designing small one or two story structures, but really hadn't designed anything like this at the time when he designed Champlain South. He was kind of an, a nobody, um, you know, plucked out of obscurity. So you start to wonder how can a guy with relatively little experience who has this kind of questionable mark on his record uh, be put in this position to design the first of its kind high rise residential tower in this you know, kind of sleepy town of Surfside, Florida. And we just don't know why they ended up going with William Friedman. But we do know that they they picked him in the late 70s and they stuck with him until the 90s. Um, and it made some people scratch their heads. And the result was a, a scattering of L-shaped residential towers in Surfside that now all have giant question marks hanging over them. And they're all within this stretch of about seven blocks. Reporter Andres Viglucci. Did he overlook possible weak spots? Did he overlook possible hazards? Did they realize that they were making mistakes in the design and then compounding them with poor quality construction? That seems likely, but it's speculation at this point. It can't really be pinned down given the lack of records and the fact that most of these folks are gone. And there's very little record of him today. If you look at the various architecture guides uh, to Miami buildings that cover quite a lot of ground, his name never comes up. He is not a guy who was especially well-regarded then as one of the top architects and almost unknown today, save for Champlain Towers, ironically. So we have a developer, an engineer, and an architect, all with less than stellar reputations, putting up these unusual L-shaped buildings in a town that needs money and lacks oversight. And Ben Connark says because so many of the project records are missing, it's actually not even clear who built 
the building. That ends up being an unknown area in this whole thing. When the developers ended up building Champlain South, they turned to a group of contractors that we just don't know anything about, who they were, what their names were. Um, we just know that this the name of the parent company that was created, but we don't know exactly who built this building. You would think that that level of detail, we're only talking about 1980, 1981 here. Um, you know, I'm sure there are buildings in New York where they know who laid the concrete and reinforcement in the 30s and 40s. Um, but, you know, you're dealing with a much different environment here and a much different government and it is kind of this thread that runs under everything is that, you know, the town of Surfside was kind of in over its head when it comes to vetting the plans, when it comes to dealing with the developers, when it comes to keeping records that would later illuminate who exactly was involved. You know, they're failing on, on all those fronts. The relationship between Ryber's team and the town was fraught from the very beginning. When they filed for their first permits in August 1979, there was a small problem. The town actually wasn't allowed to build anything new. Miami-Dade County was demanding that they fix their beleaguered sewer system before allowing any new construction to take place. So for years, uh, Surfside had kind of kicked the can down the road. They basically had fights with the state over their landfill and fights with the county over their sewage line. But their luck had run out. They were being forced to do something about the state of infrastructure in Surfside. Miami-Dade County had declared a construction moratorium in Surfside and said it wouldn't lift it until the infrastructure problems were fixed. But former Mayor Mitch Kinzer says the town just didn't have the money. For a small town like ours to raise the kind of money we would need, somewhere between probably four dollars to $600,000, which back then for a town like ours was a very large sum of money. So the Champlain Towers developers offered to kick in $200,000, half the cost of fixing the sewers. Mayor Kinzer and others in the pro-development camp saw this as a big win, an end to the old sewer problems, and the beginning of a new luxury tower that was going to bring in lots of tax revenue. The Champlain people came forward and told us that they would donate for part of the construction so that they could go ahead and build their building. So we eventually made the improvements and we were able to get the moratorium lifted. And then, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. At the time, Surfside had only a part-time building inspector and Kinzer was clear on this point. The town had limited resources and limited expertise with which to try to oversee such a big project. You have to understand that being the mayor and being a commissioner in the town is not like being the mayor of a large city or anything. It's a part-time job. It's people that, you know, care about and live in the town. We really didn't have, as a commission, direct dealings with the uh, builders. Ben Conark. This was a moment in time in Surfside where the developers and the town both really needed each other. Um, the developers needed the town to go along with their plans, and the town needed the developers to foot the bill for all of these repairs that they had to do. So yeah, I mean, I think that does fit the standard definition of greasing the wheels. And in a town government like Surfside, 
if the developers were still around to defend themselves, they might say, well, how do you do anything if you don't grease the wheels in a town like this? I mean, it wasn't functioning. We had to, you know, get things moving. There were immediately concerns from town officials who said they didn't want to be put in this position where, okay, so we get we get these sewer bills paid for by these developers. Well, what, they're going to expect something from us. And what's that going to be? And it immediately kind of turns into this very suspicious environment where there's lots of insinuations and skepticism about what is actually being worked out behind the scenes. Despite those suspicions and skepticism, the town approved the overall plan on November 13th, 1979. But almost as soon as construction got underway, so did the trouble and the turmoil. The lead contractor suddenly resigned in May of 1980 and quickly filed a lawsuit. We don't know much about it because the records have been destroyed and the contractor has died. A new contractor was brought in and later still another, but the problems persisted. A crane collapsed on the site. Thousands of dollars of wood was stolen. The tool shed was broken into. And then in August of 1980, the developers applied to add penthouses to the structure effectively raising the approved height from 12 stories to 13. Well, this violated a height restriction in the town. And Surfside was faced with a tough choice, either potentially a costly court battle or just letting the developers have their way. Again, former mayor Mitch Kinzer. And under the advice of the manager and especially our town attorney, they felt at the time that we would wind up fighting it for quite a while and spend a lot of money in the process. So the bottom line was that the commission, uh, me being one of them, voted to grant them an exception and gave them the go-ahead to put up the penthouses. We would avoid the legal problems and the financial problem and whatever. And it really didn't cover that much of the top of the building. So uh, we felt that was kind of a compromise. Ben Conark says this was no compromise. He says this was clearly the developers using their leverage over the town to get what they wanted. When the town government starts making concessions, like allowing them to build a penthouse, it's pretty obvious, you know, what's going on. You're trying to get more units within the maximum allotted constrictions that the town of Surfside has handed down. Now, the town of Surfside had these things in place because they were not a big city. Um, They were a small town, and they still have that height restriction to this day. If you go to the south in Miami Beach, there's a giant tower just south of Surfside. And if you go to the north in Bell Harbor, there's a bunch of giant towers just to the north of Surfside. Um, This is the way things have always been there. Ultimately, the project was a big financial success for Surfside for 40 years. Thanks to the people who moved into Champlain Towers North and South, the town's tax rolls jumped 15%. In 1980, as they were selling the last units, the developers ran a full-page ad in the Miami Herald, saying there were only 27 left. Be the first to get the best of the last, it said. It called the new condo a place where you would live, quote, the continental life in luxuriously appointed residences with great wraparound balconies for breathtaking views from every room. Prices started at $148,000. One of Ryber's old associates called him a tough son of a bitch. 
who saw prices as an orange to squeeze, not a seed to plant. Ben Conark asked former Mayor Kinzer how he felt about it all, all these years later. What do you make of all this? I mean, how are you kind of processing the the, the kind of aftermath of, of this building collapse? Well, the aftermath was a, a tremendous uh, tragedy. Uh, people all over uh, knew people that were lost in that building. As far as the reasons for the collapse, uh, I have no idea. You know, I have no expertise in building or construction. And like I said, we had to rely on the people at the time, the manager or building officials, uh, you know, what other uh, inspections and things that went on. Uh, At that time, construction methods were not what they are today. I I just think it was a, a... a combination of a number of things that contributed to it. I'm very anxious to see what, quote, the experts that are looking into it finally come up with in their final report. But, um, you know, for me to guess would be just the speculation at the best. The experts Kinzer refers to here are the investigators at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They are scrutinizing the materials and methods used to support the building, as well as modifications like the penthouses. Their conclusions about what might have set this disaster in motion 40 years ago, those are still many months away. As for Nathan Ryber, he would finish Champlain Towers North just a block away a short time later in 1981. But a recession forced Ryber and three other Canadian developers to abruptly stop their work on Champlain Towers East, unfinished columns and a big concrete pit in the ground marked the site until it was finally finished in 1994. That would be the third and final building in Ryber's oceanfront empire along Collins Avenue in Surfside. Some of his partners went on to build a fourth L-shaped building designed by Friedman called the Mirage. It was finished in 1995. And though there are significant differences between the Mirage, Champlain Towers North, East, and their ill-fated Southern sibling, all of Friedman's buildings have come under intense scrutiny since the disaster. Ryber lived in the Miami area until he died of cancer in 2014. His obituary in the Miami Herald described him as a philanthropist, a patron of the arts, and sharp businessman who owned a yacht. As reporter Ben Conark said at the beginning of the episode, we know a lot about the how this all happened. And we'll know a lot more when the federal investigation is finished. But we don't know a lot about the why, and we probably never will. Why this sharp businessman chose the partners he chose. Why they made some of the decisions they made. And exactly why the fatal flaws some of those decisions led to were never caught or fixed before it was too late. Coming up, did construction of a massive luxury condo right next door help cause the collapse? The residents of Champlain South certainly felt the effect of huge vibratory jackhammers attached to excavators. This is really intense construction equipment. It was all happening 10 feet away from them. Did all that vibration make a bad situation much worse? Some of those vibrations open up more cracks, shake off some of those chunks of concrete that it might have 
just been hanging on, so it just keeps accelerating the process. And was the construction crew ignoring warning signs that it might damage its fragile neighbor? You know, the fragile part is behind us, is what the records show him saying. And then he says something that you're probably going to have to bleep out. He says, F the wall, keep going. All that and more next on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salant and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.